I'll try to go through some of this uh, big pile. The questions are wonderful. If you have questions or comments after any one of them, uh, please just raise your hand. The first one asks, what is conscience? which is quite a Western notion. It has some strong parallels in the Buddhist psychology. I think Sharon mentioned briefly two particular mental qualities which are very, very strong, strongly emphasized in the Buddhist teachings. Again, the translation of them is a little difficult, so I'll I'll explain a little bit what they mean. They're translated as moral shame and moral dread. Which doesn't sound particularly wholesome. (laughs) But actually they represent something very important, and really it's quite, uh, quite, quite close to what we think of as conscience. Moral shame, that quality, has to do with a regard or a concern for the consequences of actions. And in this way, it's talked about as a certain kind of fear, but it's not fear in the sense of aversion. It's a different quality. It really is connected with wisdom in seeing that certain actions bring about suffering, either for ourselves or other people, or both. And it's this quality of mind which takes care or is concerned or has this wholesome kind of fear about not doing those actions which cause suffering. It's concern for consequences. To give you just a sense of what a wholesome kind of fear could be, we might know that if we put our hand in fire that it's going to burn, that it it has a consequence of suffering. And so we could have a fear of doing that, but not in the sense of hating the fire. It's not that there's aversion to fire. It's just a knowledge or a wisdom this action brings about this result. And there's a wisdom in knowing when the result brings suffering of not to do it, to refrain from doing it. The other quality of mind I find quite interesting because I think it pushes a button in our particular subculture. And that is that mental factor which has concern for what wise people might think of the action. And we're about to do something and we consider, well, what would a wise person think of that? 
That's that quality of moral dread. Now often when we contemplate putting a reference point outside of ourselves for determining whether or not to do something, it strikes at our egalitarian, rebellious, individualistic temperaments. You know, why should we let anybody outside of ourselves be the reference point for what I should do or not? But in some way, I think that there's that attitude, although very valuable in some areas, is actually immature in other areas. When I first was getting involved in Dharma and meditation practice, I was going back and forth a lot between being in America and going to India to study. And I was just beginning to get into a relationship with different teachers. And I remember feeling how difficult it was for me at that time to acknowledge that somebody might actually be wiser than I was. You know, it's like I just graduated college in philosophy and, you know, and it was just that, well, we were all equal. <laughs> it's just not like that. <laughs> you know, there are people who are wiser than we are and who have deeper understanding. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have deeper understanding about everything. Different people have wisdom about different things. And I found it very helpful when there's enough presence of mind, you know, in, in the midst of either contemplating or about to do something, which I have some question about, I found it very useful just to imagine what would the Buddha think of this? Or what would one of my teachers think of this? What would, what would some wise person, who I could imagine, think of this? And really what it's doing is personifying our own place of wisdom. Or it's calling up our own place of wisdom so that we can refer to that place in ourselves rather than simply be swept along you know, in the moment by our wants or desires or greeds or angers. And so this is another part of this mental factor. The name, as you can see, does not really do the quality of mind justice. Moral dread does not say much. Reflecting upon what a wise person might think of what we're about to do. It's extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. Hiri and Otapa. Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa. And I forget which is which. Since my areas of greatest grasping I clearly see are my areas of greatest pain. That doesn't give me much hope 
or even much reason for being in a love relationship, except for the possible future when I may be enlightened. (laughs) At which point I wouldn't care if I was in a relationship or not. (laughs) Besides, saying I love you now would seem a ridiculous statement to make. other than as a subtle form of masochism. (laughs) Do you see any reason to expend energy into that area of life? I ask this in all seriousness and great concern. There's another somewhat related question. How are identification and attachment related, especially in personal relationships? This is really a very big question for many people. As I was reading it and just beginning to reflect a little bit, I think as a first step in understanding it's necessary to really look deeply, very, very deeply, at what it is we call love and being in love and a love relationship. Because it seems to me that very many things get pulled into that and confused with that many conflicting feelings and conflicting emotions, all all of which we use the cover word love for. And sometimes it seems that when we say being in love, more accurately could be described as being in desire. that That may very well be the predominant feeling or emotion but our whole conditioning in society and media and it's like we glorify desire as being love. And so as a first step, I think we have to look at that in ourselves when we're in relationship or want to be in relationship. What actually is going on? What's going on in our minds? A lot of time, there will be a mixture. You know, until we're at some stage of enlightenment when desire is uprooted, it's probably going to be some combination of them. But at least if we can see it clearly, that's a beginning. To the degree that we get caught or get identified with being in desire, 
there's going to be suffering. If we come into a relationship where the primary energy is one of wanting or one of need, one of being in the relationship and looking to the relationship for a sense of completion or fulfillment. If that's the primary energy of it, there's certainly going to be dukkha. Because it's impossible to be satisfied from something outside of ourselves in that way. Nobody will ever be able to fulfill us according to each of our needs, each of our wants, each of our desires. So then the question is, well, what do we do? I mean, desire is there. Does that mean that we don't enter into relationship ever, seeing that it just leads to suffering? I don't think that's what it means, although it's also an option, which some people don't realize. You know, there's so much pressure in the culture to be in relationship But I think many people don't actually have in their minds the understanding that there are other options. That it's not necessary to be in relationship to actually be fulfilled or be complete and be happy. Okay, so that's, that's one side, just being aware that that's, that's a real viable option. And in, in many Asian cultures, it was, it was quite striking to me when I went to India, because it was the first time that I had met people in a culture that valued uh, of a single celibate life. It wasn't looked down upon, it wasn't looked as weird, it was actually valued. Not, not necessarily a monk or a nun, but just somebody who chose to live that way. And that was a real eye-opener for me, because it's certainly not valued in this culture. But that is clearly not most people's choice. I mean, for many of us, at least at some times in our life, there is this strong urge to be in relationship. And I think it's unrealistic to think that we should wait until there's only love and no desire involved, because that will probably be a long wait. (laughs) But to the degree that we can see clearly the difference between those two, and it takes quite a quite a careful looking. 
And I suggest sometime, just think of those times or experiences where you've actually felt most loving and least wanting. Where there's that energy of just giving out rather than wanting or taking in. Just so, as a reminder really of what that's like, of what that feeling of love is like as opposed to wanting or needing. And so if there's a clear sense of that in one's mind, at least in a relationship, it becomes the reference point for development. But it'll be mixed in with a lot of other stuff. But if we can come back to that, rather than coming back to the place of need or desire as the basis, I think then there's a a much greater sense of the relationship actually working and being used as a as a vehicle for more more dharma growth. That's it's really a big, big thing. What I think is so valuable about the practice, I, I don't know that I mentioned this to the whole group or not, but it's, it's a, a lovely comment that. Deepama made, this woman teacher in Calcutta, who's fantastic, fantastic woman, um, and full of love, tremendous love, and has had tremendous suffering in her life. And she's now just living in this place of the deepest peace and silence and the most extraordinary loving energy. She was visiting the States some years ago And somebody was asking her, not exactly this question, but a related one in how to combine one's Dharma practice and quest for freedom with being in relationship and having families. And how do the two go together? And she said that if you love the Dharma, as much as you love your family, it will be fine. And I thought that just got it. And if we have that much love for the Dharma, that will infuse our relationships with the right spirit. There were a number of questions about Max. (laughs) (laughs) I think I might have lost one of them for a moment. Well, this is one of them. 
Did his parents provide him with a mate? <laughs> and if so, given their understanding of rebirth, what would their attitude toward the grand, toward the grand piglets? <laughs> if they didn't provide Max with a mate, was it out of any belief about sex and Max the pig's hope for a more fortunate rebirth next time around? later. I have no idea <laughs> what, what Max's parents did. <laughs> the other question is, as I just remembered to paraphrase it, had to do with you know, the possibility of taking that kind of rebirth. The Buddha talking about how difficult it was once one has taken a lower rebirth to again have human birth. And so what does that say for our predicament? Um, It's quite an interesting situation teaching the Dhamma in the West because on the one hand feels like it's very important to express it and translate it in ways that actually can be heard given our whole cultural conditioning. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, there's a lot in the teachings that most people don't like to hear. You know, that's quite intense. And it takes a real mm, openness, not necessarily to believe it, but just to hear it, to consider it. And it's really related to questions like this. My understanding of the Buddha's teaching and the spirit in which he taught was that it was not done in a light-hearted way. It wasn't done as a way to make people feel a little better or to come to a little bit of peace in their lives, although that can happen. He saw things in a much, much bigger picture. And he was really concerned with closing the doors to suffering. And that's why there's so much emphasis really on a right kind of effort and a sense of ardency in the practice. So there's a great respect, a great respect for oneself, great respect for the Dhamma, great respect for one's practicing of it. 
So that it's not done lightly because the consequences are not light. The power of the practice, and the practice here means more than just intensive retreat. The practice really means the integration of morality, of non-harming, of the development of concentration and mindfulness, and the opening to wisdom. It's, it's this whole, the whole package. The consequence of doing the practice in this complete way, an integrated way, is that it's tremendously powerful karma. Tremendously powerful actions are being performed. And given the tendency of the untrained mind, the mind that just goes wherever its desire leads it, or goes wherever its anger or fear leads it, that there are real dangers in that, in terms of consequences of suffering. And so it's in that sense that the Buddha is really the compassionate one. He's trying to urge people to take seriously the situation, not to just be carried along on the surface. Now the balance, the great balance for us, is being able to do that, to see the seriousness and the importance from a place of real willingness and joy in the Dhamma, not from a place of uh, struggle or forcing. And that's the place we have to find in ourselves. There's another question about that. As if the physical pain were not enough, the mind adds an immense amount of mental torment around whether or not to do something to relieve it. I realize I just don't know my limits and when it is better to be kinder to myself than to endure. Can you talk a little about dealing with pain by relieving it without going beyond that which is helpful to the practice? So that really brings the question down in a very pragmatic way to how we're relating right now. The pain starts getting intense. What do we do? Do we sit there and force ourselves to be with it? I'm going to let it kill me. I'm going to sit. Do we get up and change position each time? Do we go take a hot bath? I think it very much depends on the attitude in the mind. There are times when each of those are appropriate. To sit and struggle with a sense of tremendous aversion and a sense of tremendous force and tremendous struggle does not make a lot of sense. Because all that's being cultivated are those forces of aversion and struggle and resistance and tension. It's also possible to be in places of extreme intensity when the mind has a little more space 
and where there's the quality of strong interest, where there's enough energy present so that we become interested in that edge, in that limit, in that boundary. During that course in 84 when Upandita was here, I don't know what particular karma I had then, but he had this idea that I should just sit until the pain came and then to sit through it. And so I would sit, 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 and it was for quite a while, it was fine and all light and I felt great at a certain point. It started to hurt. And it was amazing to me because I mean, here the instructions were to just sit through it. And I went through all of these attitudes. I went through the attitude, you know, and where I really had to just force myself to sit. And at other times, the mind had just this tremendous fascination with exploring the nature of pain. Okay, what is it? And what makes it so intolerable? You know, what's the very edge? And it was, it was playing at that edge. It was just at what I felt was the limit of being bearable. But that place is so interesting. What, what is that? You know, and what's going on in our minds? And it was particularly interesting because I knew that if I moved an eighth of an inch, the pain would go away. You know, it was just, I just had to move my leg a little bit. So then the question, do I do it or don't I do it? <laughs> if the attitude is right in the mind, that's the time to really explore. Because we can open up whole new boundaries for ourselves. Now, we, we have now comfortable limits. And whether it's in our sitting practice or walking practice or in our lives, there are things we feel comfortable with and things over that boundary. This is a wonderful place to just explore what that that boundary is about. Before the first time I went to Burma, I mean, people... some friends of mine had been going for some years. I had done most of my practice in India and it was not in a very structured situation. It was more individual practice. And then some people started going to Burma and I kind of knew that I'd have to go sooner or later. But there was a lot of anxiety about it. And just before I went for the first time, I had this dream that I went into the monastery and they took my zafu away. I wouldn't be allowed to sit on a zafu. It was a terrible dream. (laughs) It's actually fine to sit on zafus there, but it's just that sense of we have definite limits, you know, of, of what we're willing to do and what's beyond. When the energy is there, when the attitude is right, it's good to explore. When it's not, when the energy is not there, when the mind is too contracted, too tired, I think it's time to retreat. And so it's just learning, learning for oneself.
Can you ever be fully aware of the present moment when talking or writing? Because you are using memory connecting to the past at that time. It's another one. When I come upon a situation requiring thought or decision, mindfulness seems to escape me. Are there certain kinds of thinking which can coexist with mindfulness, others which cannot? Can the same mind be noting and thinking? I don't think it's possible to be noting in the same moment, in the very same moment as thinking, because the note itself is a kind of thought. It is possible to be aware of thinking. And perhaps you've had even glimpses of those times when you just catch a thought in the beginning. And maybe once or twice you've just seen the thought coming. When you can see the thought coming, you see the possibility that we can actually be aware of it as it comes, has duration, and goes away. So that's one way to, act, to be mindful of the thinking process. Another very simple experiment, and if I ask you now to just have the thought, the sky is blue. Just see if you can call that one up. When you call up a thought intentionally, you're aware of it. You call it up and you know that it's there and you're mindful that it's happening. And so there is a way of thinking, of decision-making, of planning, that actually is done with at least some degree of mindfulness. The problem is that most of our thinking process, we're lost in it. We're not aware. It does, we don't know when they come. Maybe we, we're lucky if we catch it somewhere in the middle. Very often it's after it's already over that we're aware of it. And so we harbor the illusion that it's impossible to think and be mindful at the same time. It's just a very, very subtle object. It's very slippery. But as the mind gets more still, even a little more still, you begin to see the possibility of it. The next time you have a decision to make, you know, at the end of a sitting or end of a walking or where you're going to walk or whatever momentous decisions you make, you know, on the retreat... (laughs) Just see if you can sort of recognize, you know, those times when you have to make a decision and practice thinking of it mindfully so that it doesn't become just a habitual thought pattern that you're lost in, but that also becomes part of the mindfulness. You see then that that it's quite possible. Neutral feeling is a defilement. Is it differentiated from detachment, which arises in a moment of mindfulness due to presence of discriminating wisdom versus forgetfulness? First, neutral feeling is not a defilement. The feelings, the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, that's not a defilement of mind. Feeling is a particular mental factor. 
and it's ethically neutral. It's actually a common factor which arises in every single moment. Our relationship to these feelings is what makes the mind either wholesome or unwholesome. So if we relate to a neutral feeling with forgetfulness, if we're not aware, if there's ignorance in that moment, not knowing what's present, that ignorance in that moment is the defilement. It's not the neutral feeling. Same thing with pleasantness. Pleasantness is fine. When we're not mindful, we begin to relate to pleasantness with attachment or grasping or clinging. That's the defilement of mind, not the pleasantness. The same thing with unpleasantness. What is the difference between plant life and beings in regard to the Buddhist belief of not killing? The Buddha made a discrimination between plant life and life with consciousness. Sometimes, because I think most of you are probably familiar with the experiments made of how plants uh, respond to different kinds of stimuli. My understanding of this is that It's not a statement that plants are not alive and therefore insensitive because living things have a sensitivity to them but that in plant life there is not the knowing faculty because there can be a sensitivity to stimuli without there necessarily being consciousness or knowing. And as far as I understand, that's the discrimination that the Buddha is making between beings with consciousness and plant life without consciousness. And so the same prohibition is not, uh, there's not the same prohibition against killing plants as killing animals. It is one of the rules for monks and nuns not to kill plant life, but for another reason. And so just for those who take the ordination, there is that prohibition. But it's not in the basic five precepts. I'm not exactly sure if this is correct. I have two things kind of circulating in my mind, but so it may not be may not be an accurate answer. One one having to do with uh, the the monks and nuns uh, disturbing with the fields the fields of the lay people around, you know. In the, because mostly it was a agricultural setting in which the Buddha taught. And so I just out of concern for the relationship of the Sangha to, to the lay people. And the other, uh, in terms of monks and nuns digging the ground, 
you know, and gardening or killing plants. Uh, I think it had to do with the likelihood in that situation of actually killing living conscious beings, you know, in that process. So there was a prohibition against that. My question is about sex and the lack thereof. For the purpose of this retreat, does celibacy mean just not having sex with another person, or are we going all the way with this definition? (laughs) If you catch my drift. (laughs) The precept that we take here is actually to refrain from any kind of sexual activity, uh, whether it's with another person or not. And there's, I think, quite an important reason for this. And the Buddha was asked, what drives this whole wheel of samsara? He said it revolves around two things. It's two factors revolving about one another. Ignorance and desire. Ignorance and craving. Because of ignorance, there's craving. Because of craving, there's more ignorance. And it just it goes around and around. And we're caught on this wheel. There are some very powerful desires built into this system. Desire for sex, desire for food. The common misunderstanding that is rampant in society and in the ordinary way of viewing things is that the only way to relieve the desire is to fulfill it, is to gratify it. And that's the common worldly belief, that we have desires and then we do whatever we have to do to fulfill them or to gratify them, and that's how we spend most of our lives. And it's really interesting to see whether you think of it in terms of sex or you think of it in terms of relationship or you think of it in terms of acquiring things. Our life mainly is spent in figuring out how we can fulfill the desires that we have. And I'm not suggesting that we should never do this because obviously as human beings and as lay people mostly, we live in that world. But what is very profound in terms of our transformation of understanding, and this is tremendously liberating, is to see that that is not the only way to relieve the desire. Because the desire, like 
everything else is impermanent. Desires come in the mind and they go. And when they go, they're gone until they arise again. And it's so amazing to watch the mind being consumed by a desire. You know, where we think that we absolutely have to fulfill this, we have to get this, we have to do this, totally caught up. And then five minutes later, or an hour later, or a month later, the desire is gone, is changed, has left. And there's no residue. The mind is cooled out again. We haven't done anything to fulfill it. By renouncing for a certain period of time in our lives the habit of automatically fulfilling our desires gives us the space to understand experientially, not theoretically and not because somebody tells us. Because we can see in our experience, desire comes, it's strong, it's intense, we feel like we have to do something about it. And if we have enough space, enough energy, just to stay with it, to be mindful of it, to note it, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, it's there, and then it's not there. And we haven't had to do anything except sit there and watch. This is a tremendous boon to us in our lives because we realize we do not have to be driven compulsively to fulfill our desires. When they're there and it's appropriate, we do it, it's fine, it's not a problem. But we definitely don't have to have our lives run by that force. And particularly with regard to sex or to food or to the very deep ones, the very basic ones, how much of our life revolves around those things. And to see there's another way of relating to them. And so the following of the precept for a period of time of renouncing that saying, no, I'm not going to act on that desire, gives us a chance to see the impermanence of them. Now, in that regard, something we haven't mentioned a lot yet, but perhaps for you to consider, to begin to consider, something which is very traditional in the Asian meditation centers and monasteries, which is for lay people who practice to follow the eight precepts. the other three, beside the ones that we take here, is five. Some of them are not much of a problem. Not sleeping on high and luxurious beds, which I think you don't have to worry about here. <laughs> not wearing adornments or jewelry or perfume or cosmetics. Not adorning the body in that way. Not going to singing and dancing shows, (laughs) and not taking food after noon, not taking solid food after noon. Uh, And for a lot of people, that's, that's a major stretch. You know, what would it be like just not to take any solid food after the noon meal? 
I think that if it's done with a sense of interest and willingness, even for some period of time, it would be well worth experimenting with. You know, and some people might do it for the rest of the retreat, which is is quite common in Asia. Other people, that would be really a sense of force and struggle, maybe like to do it for one week or one day a week. Just find in yourself to see if there's a place of interest to see, okay, what will that be like? Watching the desire for food come up and not acting on it. It's basic, very, very basic. Again, the spirit has to be done with a real sense of willingness and interest. Otherwise, it just becomes like a punishment mode in the mind, and there's no point in that. Here are a few questions about enlightenment. We hear so much about enlightened beings in the Buddha's time. How about now? Are there enlightened beings today? Can a person achieve stream entry unaware of its happening? (laughs) I seem to be losing touch with the basics. What is enlightenment? (laughs) How does mindfulness of the sense doors bring us to that state? Short of enlightenment, do cravings ever diminish or disappear, or do they just arise as frequently but lose their grip on us? If they diminish or disappear eventually, what is the process whereby this occurs? There is a whole spectrum of deepening insights and stages of enlightenment. So it's not a question simply of you're either fully enlightened or you're not. You're not enlightened at all. Even as you're practicing here, the mind is going through various stages or various phases of understanding. And you may or may not recognize this, because sometimes it's not at all obvious until you've gone through the whole sequence and have an understanding of what happens at each phase. But there is a very definite and systematic progression of the mind's development. The first stage of enlightenment is called stream entry, entering the stream which leads to Nibbana. And this happens at the first moment of the mind's opening to the unconditioned, the first glimpse of Nibbana in the practice. This is a very powerful moment because it closes off the possibility of rebirth in the lower realms. And it does that because the 
what this moment, just the glimpse of realizing Nibbana does, it uproots from the stream of consciousness the view of self. This personality, this strong I personality belief, which has been with us for countless, countless lifetimes, and which has been responsible for all of those actions which are strong enough to produce rebirth in a lower realm. And so that moment is tremendously valuable. It closes off that door. But even before that, well before that, there's a stage of practice called little stream enterer. And that's a stage in practice where the mind sees very clearly and sharply and distinctly how everything is arising and passing away. Not not on a big level, but on a very momentary, microscopic level, when it really sees the momentariness of phenomena arising and passing, arising, passing, arising, passing. That's called little stream enterer. Because from that place of insight, even though one has not yet experienced Nibbana, the momentum is there. And that if people keep practicing, it just inevitably leads to that experience of the unconditioned. This stage of arising and passing away is not so out of reach for people. And this is, this is quite a realizable experience. It takes a lot of sustained effort, building up a lot of momentum. And we can do it. One of the things that my first teacher, Munindra, said to me in the very beginning, which helped me tremendously in the practice and saved me a lot of dukkha. He said, in spiritual practice, time is not a factor. And if you can understand this, it just allows the mind to settle back, to do the work with a valuing of its importance, of its urgency, of what actually can be attained, but without a time frame, because the time frame is unknown. Some people have strong parami, strong background. Maybe they've practiced for lifetimes. They sit down, they hear a few lines of the Buddha's teaching, fully enlightened. Other people may have to practice three months (laughs) (laughs) or five years or 30 years or 60 years or three lifetimes. It doesn't matter. If we understand the direction, if we understand the path and we are committed to it with a sense of real 
importance. All of these fruits, all of these stages of insight, the stages of enlightenment, they come. And so there's this very important balance between holding a vision of what can be done by us, of really freeing ourselves from suffering. Holding that vision as an inspiration for our work and then settling back into the moment and simply going moment to moment to moment, giving up the sense of time pressure or thinking of it in terms of time. And that gives a tremendous balance to how we're working. We do it fully and completely and then surrender because the unfolding for us is out of our control. It has to do with lots of different forces at work. We do our part and then we surrender. And it's a very beautiful way to practice. It actually is possible to experience stream entry and not to know it. People have that experience in different ways and with different levels of intensity. For some people, it's just this kind of quick moment where they know something happened and they don't know what and they're not really aware of, of the profundity of it. The effect is there, but people may not realize it in the moment. For other people, the experience is very, very dramatic. I mean, it's like a lightning bolt comes into the mind. That's just an image, but very strong, very, very powerful. And so they obviously would know that something happened. <laughs> so it varies. People's experience is quite different in that way.
you have any about anything that was discussed or any other questions you might have before we close. There are certainly beings at all of the various stages of enlightenment. Obviously, the higher you go, the rarer they are. Uh, and also, people don't announce it generally. <laughs> you know, and so... <laughs> I mean, there's one story of, of a fully enlightened monk and a young novice, you know, who was living with this monk, you know, for, for many years. And uh, the novice had no idea that this monk was enlightened. And so, the person sitting next to you. <laughs> uh, In, in Buddhist circles or Dharma circles, uh, how to say, there are, very, there are certainly impressions or people have the feeling that certain beings are fully enlightened. You know, whether or not that's so, only they know. Uh, but especially with the, with the other stages, the first and second and third stages, uh, the first two, there are many, many. The, going from the second to the third is quite a big leap because at the third stage one has uprooted desire and anger. That's a major cleaning. (laughs) I mean, this is not just diminished. This is gone. Uh, So in the first two levels, there's actually many. The third is more rare, and the, the fully enlightened beings even more so. But as far as I can tell, they certainly are around. Greedy. <laughs> uh, I really don't know. You know it, it may well be that, uh, and actually, I'm quite confident there will be that. Just over a period of time, the practice is really very new, relative. You know, if one has practiced 15 years or 20 years, that's a lot here. And of course, in Asia, where people grow up with this, that's, there's just been more time, really, to mature the practice. Also, for the higher stages of enlightenment, 
there are certain lifestyles which are definitely more conducive than others. And the typical American lifestyle is not one of them. (laughs) Because it really, and we're talking about now the uprooting of these of desire, of anger, of ignorance, except in extremely rare situations, it, it would take quite a deep level of renunciation. You know, to create the stillness of mind and the power of mind that would make that possible. Uh, but I think it's all coming. You know, one of the, the wonderfully exciting things about What's happening is this transmission of Dhamma to the West. And it's, it's like we're all first generation. You know, just, it's really beautiful to contemplate you know, this, great, this great tree of the Dhamma in the West in 500 years. You know, it's fantastic. And we're, just, we're all kind of in the first wave. I, I see tremendous significance for this. Arnold Toynbee, the historian, he said that in looking at the 20th century, the, the single most important thing he saw was the, the movement of Buddhism to the West. You know? Because it has tremendous implications for society and for the culture. I think it's definitely possible. The, the reference point the Buddha gave for whether enlightened beings are still in the world or not, he said, if people are following the Eightfold Path, there will be that fruit. And when people don't follow it, there won't be. And the Eightfold Path doesn't have to be mean being a Buddhist. It means cultivating you know, all of those factors of mind.
this afternoon we had our Pali class and we went over one of the uh, <laughs> just one of the brief teachings of the Buddha and as we were doing it I said, oh, I've got to say this tonight and I had forgotten so I'm glad you asked uh, and it's only peripherally related to your question <laughs> This is one of those aspects of the teachings that is not at first popular. It said from from the destruction of delight comes the destruction of passion. From the destruction of passion comes the destruction of delight. From the destruction of delight and passion, the mind becomes well freed, well liberated. Okay, the destruction of passion, I think, is fairly easy for us to understand. But what is this destruction of delight? Because we also talked about how the Buddha, we were talking about this particular word in Pali, nande, which means delight. And I was raising the question, well, you know, what's the actual, the actual connotation of that? Because delight doesn't seem so bad, you know, in English. It's kind of a nice, Seems like it should be a nice state. We talked about the different ways that word was used in the suttas. So it was used in this context that I just mentioned, from the, from the destruction or the ending of the light comes the ending of passion and vice versa. But the word was also used to describe the feeling that the Buddha or other enlightened beings might have in seeing a beautiful sunset, a beautiful scene. Presumably, if the Buddha felt this after his enlightenment, it was not an unwholesome state of mind. And so it gets quite interesting to become precise in terms of what kind of delight feeds passion and desire, and what kind of delight doesn't. It's important to do this because if we don't discriminate, we lump it all together, and we may be lost in an unwholesome state actually thinking it's quite wholesome. There was just one more little uh, teaching that we that we read in Pali, which just warmed my Buddhist heart. It says, "Those who delight in rupa, in material elements, delight in suffering." <laughs> <laughs> 
Those who delight in feelings delight in suffering. Those who delight in perception delight in suffering. Those who delight in consciousness delight in suffering. Those who delight in sankhara, in all the mental factors, delight in suffering. Does it warm your heart? <laughs> I, don't th- I don't get the feeling that it does. <laughs> the reason that sort of it just it really resonates in a certain way. is because we are so often misled. We're misled by the force of ignorance in our own minds. We're misled by the force of ignorance in the world, which is all saying, oh, delight in this and delight in this and delight in this and that's what's going to make you happy. And so in those moments... When somebody is actually willing and clear enough and wise enough to say what is actually true, it just feels so good to see that it's not delight in all these things which lead to happiness. This is the delight in the sense of wanting or grasping or holding on. It just doesn't do it. And we know that. When we're really in a quiet space and we look in our own experience, we know that. And just as we hear those words, the possibility anyway, of even getting a glimpse or an intuition or a just even the the vaguest sense of what it would be like just to let go on all sides. To let go of that attachment, to let go of that wanting, to let go of that grasping, to let go of the material elements, to let go of feelings of consciousness, of mental, of everything. didn't exactly answer your question, but it's a nice place to stop. (laughs) Why don't we sit for just a few minutes?
let the mind settle back into the moment. And be aware of objects arising and passing by themselves. Just let the breath come and go. And sensations and thoughts and images and sounds Sometime in this next week, maybe we will Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.